anything can happen that you underwrite, in this case, an investment management organization that was just a fantastic organization, did everything the right way, except for one thing, which was they had leverage and they didn't manage risk in the worst possible moment to be able to withstand a hundred year flood, whatever it is that happened. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Women Building Wealth Membership Group, the complete proven step-by-step course to guide women from novice to confident investor. To learn more, go to womenbuildingwealth.net. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Ted Seides. Ted, are you ready to rock? Andrew, I'm ready to roll. Oh, yeah. I can't tell you how excited I am to hear your story. And let me tell the audience a bit about you. For those of you out in the, the listeners out there, like me, you listen to podcasts, and Ted's maybe one that you listen to. So Ted is the son of a teacher and a psychiatrist, perhaps by genetic disposition. He is passionate about sharing his insights and investing in people. Ted is the chief investment officer of Perch Bay Group, a single family office he joined in 2017 to manage a diversified portfolio of direct and fund investments across asset classes. Ted produces and hosts the Capital Allocators podcast. By the end of 2018, the show reached 1 million downloads. From 2002 to 2015, Ted was a founder of Protege Partners and served as president and and co-chief investment officer. Protege was a leading multi-billion dollar alternative investment firm that invested in and seeded small hedge funds. Ted built the firm's investment process and managed the sourcing, research, and due diligence of its portfolios. Sharing the lessons from his experience, Ted authored the book, So You Want to Start a Hedge Fund, Lessons for Managers and Allocators, which you can find on Amazon. Ted began his career in 1992, which is basically the year that I moved to Thailand, under the tutelage of David, the the very famous David Swenson at Yale University Investment Office. During his five years at Yale, Ted focused on external public equity managers and internal fixed income portfolio management. Following business school, he spent two years investing directly at private equity firms Stonebridge Partners and J.H. Whitney and Company. With aspirations to demonstrate the salutary, how about that? (laughs) Salutary? Man, okay, there you go. A much more learned man than me. Benefits of hedge funds on institutional portfolios to a broad audience. Ted made a non-profitable wager with the infamous Warren Buffett that pitted the 10-year performance of the S&P against a selection of five hedge fund of funds from 2008 to 2017. You may have heard about that. Ted is a columnist for Institutional Investor. He wrote a blog for CFA Institute's Enterprising Investor and wrote guest publications for the late Peter L. Bernstein's Economics and Portfolio Strategy. Ted holds a BA in Economics and Political Science cum laude from Yale University and an MBA from Harvard Business School. Ted, take a minute. Fill in any further tidbits about your life. Thanks, Adrian. I think the most important thing is I've figured out I need to shorten my biography. <laughs> there is the key. Uh, where are you, by the way? I am in Connecticut. So now it's time 
to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Sure. Well, asking that question in the first place, I had to think about what does that even mean? Your worst investment is the worst investment process, the worst investment outcome, some combination. And I think I've made lots of bad investments, fortunately a few good ones as well. And for this particular story, I decided to pick uh, one of the worst investment outcomes. And we're going to go with that. And this was in my early years at Protege Partners. So we're, we're going to start in 2002, right around the launch of that fund. And one of the core investments we made, and this was a multi-manager hedge fund portfolio, uh, one of the core investments we made was in a relative value arbitrage hedge fund called Park Central. Uh, it was a group that had spun out or actually was included in the family office of the late Ross Perot. And they had been managing the strategy for a long time, very, very successfully. Think of a value-oriented relative value strategy with a very long time horizon, tremendous amount of co-investment. Uh, I think originally Ross had put $500 million into the fund. There were just terrific people running it. It was one of the rare, well-run organizations. You don't see many investment management organizations that are run with great business principles, but this was one of it. And uh, they launched outside investors in, in July of 2002. They grew over a few years to, I don't remember exactly, but two to three billion in assets. They closed the fund to new investors. And, uh, and they did, they continued to do very well. It was a strategy, sort of think about it as trying to make 10 to 12% a year with relatively low volatility. And they, they had done that historically and they continued to do it. And they grew and they'd find new strategies just really insightful, terrifically communicative. You knew exactly what was going on. Uh, so here we go into 2008, and things got a little shaky for them in the spring, and, and a few things went awry they weren't expecting, but that was sort of within the bounds of their understanding of risk. And, and in the summer and into the fall, uh, they would come by the office and they said their largest position was a relative value trade in the commercial mortgage back space. And so everyone remembers the subprime residential mortgages that really blew sky high. Uh, but in the commercial mortgage space, if you really thought about the fundamentals, there wasn't a lot at that point in time of problems in the economy. But there were some strange things happening in the capital markets because of the, the turmoil, particularly in September. And they got through the Lehman bankruptcy in the month of October and going into November, they had a particular trade where they were long some senior debt, and these were commercial mortgage-backed securities, so they were long senior debt in a capital structure and short the junior debt. And they said, boy, this is one of the best things we've ever seen. The senior debt was priced as if something like, I don't remember the exact numbers, but something like 40% of the underlying commercial real estate would have to default with no recovery at all. And they said, we, we, we just haven't seen anything like this. It's because of all the turmoil that's happening. And it was so bad that they said, you know, it doesn't even make sense for us to continue to hedge with the junior debt because it had gone down so much. It wasn't really hedging anything. And they let all the clients know what was happening. And, uh, and then as you rolled into November, it just started to get worse. 
So they, I don't remember the exact pricing dynamics, but there was a particular week in November and they were in New York in our offices saying, you know, we, we keep putting money into this trade. We keep backing the collateral. It just keeps getting worse. And for one day, that those prices moved. I remember it was 1,700 basis points over treasuries. And that was at the time, it was the equivalent of something like 60% of all of the commercial real estate that underlied these assets had to go bankrupt with no recovery. I mean, forget about the depression. This was way, way worse than that. But on that day, they lost all the money in the fund. They, in fact, lost more than all the money in the fund. And the fund NAV went to zero. Actually, went to negative. The prime brokers lost some money. And about two weeks later, it all snapped back. But it was a little too long. And, uh, you know, they, you could have described it as poor risk management. You could have described it as, you know, being involved in the drive-by shooting. So, so what, what happened, though, was most of the principals in that organization had all of their money invested alongside the clients. They lost all of it. Uh, Ross lost whatever it was. Maybe it was $500 million, Maybe it was more. Decided not to put in billions more to back the trade to get to the other end, which was always the implicit reason why they'd be able to withstand turmoil. And it was probably, you know, at around the same time, a little bit before, was when the Bernie Madoff stuff came out. And everybody knows about that. And Madoff, I think the investors today probably got most of their money back with all of this recovery from Irving Picard. But in this one, you know, for us, it was a two or 3% position in the portfolio and you could withstand it. But it was one of those examples that the market can stay rational longer than you can stay solvent. And that really anything can happen. There was nothing about the fundamentals of these assets that would have told you this, this could have happened. So uh, I have some questions for you on this. I, it's a fascinating story of an extreme situation. The first question I have is, you know, when these guys, obviously you've explained that they're very communicative and they're also very talented. How did they, they obviously let their position in this particular investment get way over the top. How did that happen? Well, that's a good question. And from the outside, it was a situation where they thought the value was there. They didn't think it could possibly get as bad as it did. And they decided not to sell the position. They did have some other positions in the portfolio. And one by one, you know, they sold off some of those positions. But it was ultimately, it was a judgment call that the value was there and that they thought that they'd be able to withstand the pain over time. So my next question is, is that, you know, when we think about investing in assets, we invest in, you could invest in a physical asset such as a building, or you can invest in an instrument which may own many buildings. The benefit of investing in a physical asset is that the price is never going to go to zero. That physical asset could go down. Let's say I bought, I'm here in Bangkok, Thailand. Let's say I have a building that I bought. I bought it for $100 million and the environment turns terrible. The value of that business is never going to be quoted at zero. It could be quoted, you know, uh, uh, someone, an external valuer would come and say, okay, that's only worth 50 million now. But to go to zero would just be impossible, I think. <laughs> but if I decided to buy a, an instrument that owned 10 buildings in Thailand, the underlying building's asset value may fall by 50%, but it is possible that the instrument falls to zero because the instrument is subject to the whims of the market. 
and there is where an instrument has a, an additional risk that it could be very volatile relative to the underlying asset. Is that what you're describing in this case that happened? Or how would you think about this particular case in relation to that? Particularly thinking about the listeners out there that are debating about buying a physical asset versus buying an instrument you know, in, in yeah. that owns physical assets. Um, not entirely, though, though part of it was the problem. So on the one hand, this instrument was a pool of loans. So if you think about owning a building, it wasn't even the equity in the building. It was the debt that is senior to the equity. The problem here is that the fund itself had leverage. And that is the key lesson from, that, uh, from this mistake, which is if you invest in anything that has leverage, you could run into a situation where you're not in control of your own destiny. And we, you know, we talk about markets can stay rational longer than you can stay solvent. And it turns out that, that not only is that true, but it can happen to you. That's not just a phrase that happens to other people. It's a fantastic lesson. And I think also for some of the listeners out there you know, that have private bank accounts and the private bankers are talking to them always about you know, leverage you know, the money that you have. And you know, I think they present it in such a way that there's like, you're not gonna lose, there's no way. I mean, come on, you know, there's nothing. So I think that one of the key lessons is that issue about, less, about leverage. But let me ask you, what lessons did you learn from this? Well, I think the biggest lesson was that anything can happen, that you underwrite, in this case, an investment management organization that was just a fantastic organization, did everything the right way, except for one thing, which was they had leverage and they didn't manage risk in the worst possible moment to be able to withstand a very you know, 100-year flood, whatever it is that happened. So there is a degree to which you look back at that underwriting and you say, boy, if you're investing in that type of a strategy, one of the key lessons is you better understand how you're going to make it through the worst storm that's much worse than you could imagine if you're, employing, if you're deploying leverage in the strategy. And is that, from your perspective, let, let's ask about the lesson that you learned as an, as an allocator, as someone looking at where to put your money. These guys look great. Is there something that you could have done or could have seen that you didn't see? Right. The hardest part is, and the answer to that is no. Uh, I think the underwriting was correct. Uh, the only thing you can do is understand that one of the nodes in your outcome distribution, probabil probability distribution, has to be a massive left tail event. And you have to size that appropriately, which we did too. In the hedge fund world today, some of the hottest strategies are something that resembles this fund at Park Central in scale. So if you think about Citadel or Millennium or D.E. Shaw which, or True Sigma, which have been these fantastic organizations that have generated exactly the kind of returns that institutions look for and are now 30 to $50 billion in assets, most of their strategy is predicated on earning a small spread with massive amounts of leverage. So the question is, how tight are those risk management disciplines? And in these cases, they in fact are fantastically well run. But anyone investing in those has to understand that even in that situation, there's a lot you don't know. You know they're run on leverage and you have to think very carefully about the risk reward, including the possibility of something much worse than you could imagine happening. 
that's highly unlikely to happen in a strategy or an investment, as you said, where you're just owning an asset really without leverage. And if it's a hard asset, it's probably never going to go to zero. So let's, um, let's look at this from a listener's perspective. He, you just mentioned that there's plenty of funds out there right now that have taken advantage of the low interest rate environment. They can get funds at a very low rate. And they've somehow, through many different mechanisms, then invested that in relatively high equity returns that have been rising you know, for the last 10 years. Everything is great. And there's nobody that's going to go out there and go, interest rates are going to spike by, you know, 5%. Before we know it, we're going to have 5% 10-year treasury. It isn't going to happen in most people's mind, of course, right now. But you could argue, well, okay, maybe that could happen, but maybe that's a long-tail event. But let's look on the other side. Where are they investing that money? Is it possible that the equity return could collapse? Well, that's very possible. So my question is, and, and maybe what I want to do is, skip to the actionable advice section of the podcast because I think it's a, it's a critical lesson. You know, what my point is, is that what, you know, based upon what you learned from this and what you've continued to learn after all those podcast interviews and all of the work that you've done, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And keeping in mind, think about your exact situation that you went through the issue leverage being an issue and keep in mind kind of where the markets are right now. What one uh, action would you recommend that, that listeners take? When you think through the possible outcomes for any investment and you think about the worst case scenario, be a lot more creative on how much worse it could get than your worst possible outcome. Yep. Beautiful. And uh, let me mention a couple of takeaways that I get from this. Uh, the first one is uh, overconfidence. Obviously, um, it happens all the time. I mean, in, in the investment field, what are we, we're paid to come up with a strong opinion and put the money where, you know, put the money where our mouth is and really, you know, get behind that opinion. And sometimes um, that can lead to overconfidence and that overconfidence can creep up on you. You could be very disciplined for many, many years and then all of a sudden you think you've got this right and then you pile into it. So that's lesson. That's one of my takeaways from it. Uh, the second one is diversification. It wiped out them, but it didn't wipe out you because of the sizing of the position. And really diversification is the key in that case. And that's a great lesson for listeners. The third thing I would highlight is that when I look at companies and I look at, I mean, I love as an analyst analyzing companies. And basically what I say is really there's, there's two main risks that an analyst should be looking for. Number one is leverage and number two is Forex. Now that's particularly over here in Asia. If, if a company had no debt and no foreign exchange exposure, you've just eliminated a huge amount of potential risk. Now I'm not necessarily advocating a case of, you know, that somebody should have no debt. In the theory of finance, we say that adding debt to a capital structure will reduce the weighted average cost of capital and that will optimize the market's value of that company. But I talk about a, a friend of mine, a man named Anutin, who has a company in Thailand and he's got 20% of his balance sheet is cash and he has no debt. And I'm like, this is crazy. You know, you don't know the principles of finance. And he said, Andrew, you don't know the principles of business. He said, I almost lost this business in 1997 crisis 
because of the debt and the foreign exchange exposure, I'll never borrow another dollar from the banks. And what he said then is say, there are benefits to having a cash balance sheet. Number one, when a supplier you know, needs better credit terms because they're in a cash crunch, I can easily do that and get a reduced cost. I can pay cash for things and I can increase my gross margin. The weighted average cost of capital doesn't necessarily take that into consideration. The second thing is when opportunities come up, when other companies go bust, I can buy them. And the third thing, because he's a contractor, he's bidding on government jobs, he's got to have cash that he can put down as a deposit, and he always has that, whereas his competitors don't. And his share price went up and has gone up for many years. And that was a great lesson to me that for all the people that are listening that are, you know, reading the textbooks that we all read, and, you know, it all, there's a lot of logic and a lot of sense there. But the point is, is that the weighted average cost of capital and the, the, the theory of the value of the firm, just like everything in finance, is only a theory. It's not a law. It can be broken. It can be crushed. It's a framework. So those are my takeaways. Any, any thoughts on those? Oh, I think those are all terrific and spot on. Yeah. So those are some of the things. I mean, you give us all a lot to think of. So let me ask you, last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months? <laughs> per personal, <laughs> professional? Don't want, yeah, I don't want to make any of these mistakes. I think my number one goal for the next 12 months is to figure out how the work I've done on the podcast can best benefit an investment organization. Yeah, I think that's great. And I know you've been doing more of these, um, what, I forget what you're calling them, the introductory, the first meeting. Yeah. And I think those, that's an interesting you know, twist. And for the listeners out there, you should listen to some of these because uh, Ted's doing some interesting interviews. So, all right. Well, as we end, I want to tell the listeners that we've got another great story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. And as we end, Ted, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I don't, Andrew. Keep this up. It's a lot of fun, and it's a terrific way of trying to tease out lessons. Fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, ladies and gentlemen, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.